Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined on the phone by Ben Badler. We're here to talk Blue Jays, and uh, obviously, Ben, they've got a pretty, pretty intriguing system, topped by two of the most exciting young players in baseball, and two progeny of uh, big leaguers, Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette. Uh, ben, before we kind of dive into you know each guy individually, just overall, this duo, the fact they've climbed together, they're kind of associated with each other on a number of levels. How much are these guys kind of, you know, raising the excitement, not just of, of the Blue Jays system, but really just the entire franchise as a whole? Yeah, it's, uh, every time I write about the Blue Jays farm system or Vladdy and, and Bo, I mean, it, it just seems like this is, these are the guys that Blue Jays fans are, are and very rightfully so. <laughs> excited about i think there's it's kind of an odd strategy i think that their front office is taking this year where um i think it makes a lot of sense to do like a like a one-year reset and try to trade away prospects not tear everything down the way that the the braves did and and go for like a multi-year tank and rebuild but uh do something like the yankees did uh, a year, a couple of years back, and and add prospects to the system, and and still uh, be competitive in, in 2019, which is you know as, as young as Vladdy and, and Bo are, uh, I think these guys can can help them in 2019. I think these guys are both uh, centerpiece, franchise cornerstone type players. Uh, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely the high man in the office on Bo Bichette, but I mean, for me, Bo Bichette is a, a top five prospect in baseball. And for me, I think, I think Otani is, you know, of, of all the players who have uh, rookie eligibility and, and still prospect eligibility, uh, I think Otani is, is the best of that group. But, you know, put him aside for, for a second because <laughs> he's a, you know, two-way player, kind of a mutant in his own right, but uh, I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, after Otani is, is the best prospect in baseball, so I think the system definitely takes a pretty steep uh, dip after those top two guys, I mean, uh, and especially at the top handful of players in, in the system, but uh, but that top two is, is the best top two prospects in baseball for me. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. In terms of your discussions, you, know, you mentioned the fan excitement about these guys, but obviously we at Baseball America talk a lot to farm directors, scouts, inside and outside the game. Beyond just fan excitement, did you sense an excitement both within the Blue Jays front office and even from outside scouts like, hey, these guys are the real deal. It's not just hype because of the names and, and A-ball production? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's why... <laughs> And that's that's why these guys are, are that's why there's so much excitement around these two guys is that uh, I, th- I think it's cool <laughs> it's kind of a cool story that yeah both these guys are coming up together and and their dads played in in the big leagues and uh, you know Vlad's dad is gonna go I assume and or he should go into the Hall of Fame this year and and so I, I understand that but it's also they're just two super talented players, whether you know whether his name is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or or just you know, Jose Pena. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the the name is. This this both of these guys are just super super talented, uh, especially in, in the batter's box. 
Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, the Blue Jays maybe needing a one-year reset rather than a tank. And, and really, it's what Bichette and Guerrero can do for you in the batter's box. You look at the Blue Jays last year, uh, you know, obviously 2015-2016 back-to-back ALCSs. And the Blue Jays, I mean, they were bombers. Um, then you saw Edwin Encarnacion leave. Jose Bautista start to decline. You look at last year's uh, everyday lineup. Every single one of these guys was, for the most part, a below-average hitter as measured by OPS+. Plus except for Justin Smoke and Josh Donaldson. I mean, seven of their nine everyday guys were below average offensively. You know, you have guys like Troy Tulowitzki and Russell Martin, who, you know, you can say it's down years, but they're also about to be 33 and 35. Uh, Offense is, is in a lot of ways, what the Blue Jays need, even though we associate them with a high-powered offense. These guys, uh, tremendously talented. We also mentioned that they topped out in high last year. How quickly do you think, because obviously guys get to the majors, but there's still an adjustment period once they get there. How quickly, realistically, is it for Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Bobachet to be having everyday consistent impacts in this Blue Jays lineup? I, I think they could probably do it by the time they're, you know, 21, 22 years old. And, you know, both of these guys, I think, I don't, I don't know that it's a certainty that yet that they're going to start the season in double A together. Um, but I, you know, certainly if I were their farm director, I would say these guys have nothing left to prove in high A. They both demolished the Florida State League last year. These are two uh, kids who are, are super, super advanced and polished for their age and can handle the challenge of going to double to A, even though they are. Uh, so young and would be the youngest players in the Eastern League, and I just don't, I don't see anything, I don't see anything in their game that's going to cause them to hit a wall in uh, in Double A next year. So I think you're looking at if if the Blue Jays were, for example, if if they were in a position where, uh, and I would be surprised if this happened, but if they were in a position. Where they were playoff contenders by the you know by the by the All Star break in 2018 and they needed help. Well, you know, similar to what the Red Sox did in 2017 with Rafael Devers, I think there there's a chance that both of them could come up and and be in the major leagues by the end of 2018. Now I don't think the Blue Jays are going to be in that position, and I think that their front office. Uh, the, the people who are in their front office are a lot more conservative on on promoting their prospects than that. I, I don't think you're going to see them push them so aggressively, although when you have players who are uh, as talented and, and are dominating their leagues the way that Guerrero and, and Bichette did last year, they just sort of force their way up pretty quickly. But uh, I think by by 2019, I think both of these guys are, are going to be in the big leagues and uh, you're right. I mean, it's it's, it's really hard to be, uh, you know, an impact player when you're 20 years old at the major league level. But um, these guys are, are both super talented. I think by 2019, they're both going to be up. And, and certainly, I think by 2020, you've got a chance to see these guys both be uh, above average players in, in that lineup. No question. There's definitely a lot of reason to be to be uh, optimistic about these two. Just real quick, you know, we know Vlad Guerrero Jr. Look, 
We know he's good. I, I remember talking uh, a couple people about this when I was describing, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. It wasn't, hey, is this guy a good prospect who will be a big leaguer? Yeah, we know it. It's just a matter of degrees. You know, how good? How good can Vlad Guerrero Jr. be? I think he's talented enough where he's going to be in MVP conversations uh, at some point in his career. I mean, remember, he's, he's 18 years old. He's, he's really the same age as all the high school players, you know, Royce Lewis, Mackenzie Gore, all, all these guys who were uh, first-round picks out of high school in the draft this year and, and went to, you know, the Gulf Coast League or, or the Arizona League or, uh, you know, and, and even the super-polished, advanced 18-year-old kids out of uh, Latin America. A lot of them are still in, in the Gulf Coast League or, you know, in the case of like a Leody Tamaris or, or a Juan Soto, they might be in the South Atlantic League, but um, they're not dominating that league. Guerrero dominated that league as an 18-year-old. And then he went to the Florida State League and continued to just dominate again. And these are, again, he's 18 years old, and these are two very pitcher-friendly leagues. And to, to do what he did at that age in those two leagues is is just incredible. Uh, and, and you look at him from a, a scouting perspective, in addition to the numbers he put up, I mean, you really can't. You really have to nitpick to find any holes in his offensive game. It's just, uh, it's really, really good bat speed, great bat control, just like his dad. Uh, he kind of has the same hitting mannerisms as his dad, but he's a much more disciplined hitter, too. Um, he has a really, really outstanding sense for the strike zone. He squares up fastballs, squares up breaking balls. He stays within the strike zone. Uh, he has big, big-time power, too. So you have a guy who has a chance to be a top-of-the-scale hitter with outstanding plate discipline and, uh, you know, probably going to have 60 to, to 70 raw power, maybe even more. I mean, he's still 18. It's, <laughs> it's hard to say what his power ceiling is. And the thing about him, too, is he just, you know, we ranked him as the number one international prospect when he signed in 2015, it's hard to say like a guy who was ranked number one was underrated, but he kind of was <laughs> just because he keeps getting better at everything. He keeps getting better. When he was number one as a 16-year-old as a signing out of Dominican Republic because of his bat, I remember at that time he was an outfielder, and you know he was a, he was a left fielder, didn't really run well didn't throw well, but since signing, obviously he moved to third base. His arm has gotten stronger. He's even gotten faster. Speed is not going to be much of a part of his game, and, and I think the mobility is, is the long-term agility and mobility is a, a concern at, uh, at third base just because of how big he is right now as an 18-year-old, but uh, he's he's gotten better defensively. He's gone from a guy who was just kind of a... Eh, maybe left field guy in a best case scenario, but probably gets too big and goes to first base to a guy who has really worked hard to, to improve defensively at third base to a chance to, to the point where there's a chance that he could, he could start out his career uh, at third base. But I think at some point, maybe by his mid twenties or so, he, he gets, you know, just so big that he, he goes to first base, but 
Uh, I mean, I, I think that he's going to have I – mean, he's got a chance to be like a, a Manny Ramirez type of offensive player, and I don't really say that lightly <laughs> by any means. But uh, I think you, if you have that kind of bat, it doesn't matter where he plays on the field. Uh, that's going to be uh, uh, a, a premium elite-level player. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned it too. I think one of the things that we consistently kept hearing over and over and over throughout the year was, hey, he's getting better at third base. He's getting better at third base. And even if it's only the first couple years of his career there, you know, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't hurt. It's helpful. And I think that's where, you know, you mentioned Manny Ramirez. I mean, people, you know, obviously there's always hesitation to compare any 18-year-old to any Hall of Famer, but uh, you look like the career track of a Miguel Cabrera, of an Albert Pujols, you know, guys who came up, they were third baseman, they moved to first, and, you know, any any insinuation that they were somehow less valuable or no longer the best player in baseball for a good chunk of years just because they played first base doesn't have any merit. And, and I think there's a sense that Vlad could be one of those guys. Yeah, I mean, if, if, uh, I'm not that aggressive typically on on players, especially if they're still 18 years old. But if you, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a no doubt top five prospect in baseball. And if you can't be aggressive on somebody who's as talented as, uh, as Vladdy Jr. is, then I, I don't know who you can be uh, aggressive on. Absolutely. And, and yeah, a lot of scouts who are naturally conservative are, are definitely saying, yeah, I, I believe in this guy. You know, Bo Bichette was a guy that, again, wasn't by any means an unknown coming into this year. He had had a really good debut in the Gulf Coast League. You know, he was a second rounder for a high schooler. So while obviously that's not a top, top pick, you know, being taken, you know, still one of the, you know, day one as a high schooler, you're still one of the best players in the country at that given time. Um, but he's just been so much better than it seems like anyone anticipated. In your discussions with both scouts inside and outside the organization, uh, what have you found has been the general consensus on what has made Bo so much better even than I think everyone realized? Yeah, it's interesting because I did our Gulf Coast League prospect list last year, and Shed he got not injured. He had an issue with his uh, appendix. It didn't require surgery, so he, he didn't play – all that much in the Gulf Coast League, but when he did play, he was just super, super impressive. And talking to people there in that league, they uh, they, they said he was one of the best players in the league. So I was I was I was definitely high on Bichette coming into the year, and I think that people in high school just they just underestimated him. Um, so that I think he was getting. He was getting pitched around in high school. Uh, I know I, I talked to scouts who scouted him, uh, who were area scouts in, in Florida, and they said sometimes they just went in and saw him, and, and they never actually got to see him swing the bat because he was just getting pitched around. And then I think, you know, I, I, I'd read some of the stuff, um, or heard some of the stuff about his swing, about people having concerns about his swing, uh, I don't, I don't share any of those concerns at all. I, I think he has a, I think he has a great swing. He's got a, a lot of rhythm. He's got balance. He's got outstanding bat speed and and clean through the hitting zone. Uh, barrels stays through the zone forever. Uh, so he just has more margin for 
for error, and he's got big power too, uh, and he's and he's a smart hitter. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things that uh, a lot of attributes that he has that a lot of great hitters have. Uh, no, I didn't think he was going to hit. Uh, you know, just completely demolish the Midwest League and then the Florida State League, like he did this year. Um, but, but yeah, this I, I think he has uh, a lot of the characteristics that you see in a lot of the the great hitters in in the major leagues. You know, you mentioned the the swing, and it's interesting. Um, I just in the course of the season, calling various scouts, talking about various players, and obviously, you know, wanted to ask, hey, early in the year, what, what do you see from this guy? And I just want to read the report I got, and it's you know, it speaks to that a little bit. How I think sometimes people want to see almost a cookie cutter swing approach sometimes, and you know, doesn't always work that way. That the the exact quotes I got were, you know. On offense, he always got the barrel to the ball. He's got a severe severe wrap around his head. He's got a funky setup I didn't really care for, but he got to good fastballs, bad fastballs, breaking balls. He was hitting everything and hitting it hard. So you got to believe he may be one of those special guys who can do a funky approach and get away with it. He's got good hand-eye coordination, barreled the ball, showed gap power. Uh, you know, again, I think it just spoke speaks to a little bit. There's and look in all industries, this isn't just scouting. You know, sometimes individuals are risk averse to something that's a little out of the ordinary, and uh, I think it's it's a testament. You know, for Bo, a lot of scouts I've talked to said, yeah, they believe that even though maybe something might not be traditional, you know, after seeing it work, even at just the A ball levels, they think it will work moving forward all the way up to the major leagues. Yeah, I don't even see anything all that funky in in what he does. I mean, he he yeah, I mean he has a, a leg kick in a swing. It's to <laughs> helps him generate power. He's consistently on time and and on plane with the baseball. So yeah, I mean I, I don't think that's the only scout who <laughs> who holds that opinion. But I just totally disagree uh, with it. I, I think he's got a I think he has a really great swing. I think he does a lot of things that. A lot, of, a lot of great major league hitters do. And I think I definitely agree with the part about the, the hand-eye coordination and, and the barrel-to-ball skills. Uh, he definitely has that. Uh, and, and outstanding bat speed and, and power. I think the power is only going to continue to increase as he gets older and stronger and uh, just becomes a, a more more mature hitter. I mean, he's already mature for his age in terms of his, his approach and hitting knowledge, but even as that grows and he becomes even a more selective hitter and a smarter hitter and he's a better idea of how pitchers are trying to attack him uh he's gonna swing at even better pitches and, and he's gonna see that power jump up uh jump up even more now defensively it seemed throughout the year a lot of people were saying you know he is a guy that will have to move to second base um but even again if he does you're still talking about more than enough offensive production to justify a, a top prospect in all of baseball uh, just defensively, in general, you know, the scouts you spoke to throughout this process, uh, what were the overall you know, assumptions about where he's going to have to be defensively when all is said and done? For, for me, I think it's a combination of things. One is how much better he gets defensively at shortstop. And two, uh, I think some of it's just circumstantial. Uh, depending on who he plays with, like who his teammates are. Uh, if he's teammates, you know, with somebody like, uh, you know, a Danny Echeverria or Brandon Crawford or someone who, you know, Alcides Escobar, so he's more of a traditional, like, true shortstop, 
then yeah, Bichette's probably going to go to either second base or third base. And I think if he goes to either of those spots, he has a chance to be an above average defender there. But uh, I'm, I'm more, I, I think there's a higher probability that Bichette stays at shortstop uh, now than I would have given him coming into uh, the year, you know, at, at this time, uh, you know, a, a year ago. Uh, I think he, he got better defensively. He's not, he's not flashy. He's not going to make any of the acrobatic plays that are, um, I was going to say get on Sports Center, but I don't think I've watched Sports Center in <laughs> 10 years, and I don't even know. I guess maybe the more appropriate would be uh, get him on, on Instagram or <laughs> uh, some other highlight reel. But um, So he's not going to make those super flashy plays, but he's. I think he can be uh, somebody who's just a fundamentally sound player who, who has a strong arm, has a, uh, a clock for the game. I think he's got to improve his – his footwork and, and, and improve his range to the best, uh, to the best that he can, at least. I don't think that's ever going to be plus, but uh, I think that, uh, I, I think he has a chance to, to stay at that position. And I think there's a lot of guys who we've seen defy expectations and, and stay at shortstop, whether that's, uh, you know, Addison Russell, uh, coming out of high school. Uh, where, where people were concerned about where whether he was going to stay at shortstop or Sandra Bogarts, uh, Corey Seager, and, and these guys, you know, some of them not only have stayed at shortstop, but have become above-average defenders at that position. And I don't have that expectation for Bichette, but I, I do think there's a... I would certainly keep him at shortstop for now, and I, I do think there's a possibility that he, he can stay at shortstop. I wouldn't just assume that he's going to go to third base or second base. Uh, but I do think that, you know, depending on you know, how much better he gets and, and who his teammates are in the future, there's there's a pretty good chance that he, he goes over to second base or third base. And if he does, uh, he can be an above-average defender at either of those spots. Absolutely. So you, with these top two, we know, are, are kind of heads and, head and shoulders above the rest of the Blue Jays group. Going into that 3-4-5 range, you know, you had Anthony Alford, Nate Pearson, Lourdes Goriel and Eric Pardinio, uh, their big offseason uh, or international signing, I should say. Um, what went into the decision to kind of you know group these guys? Some of the names that maybe have been on this top ten list in the past. Some of the pitchers, high picks, Sean Reed Foley, T.J. Zoic, Connor Green, guys like that who ends up dropping below these guys. Just what was kind of the process and, and determining that you know Alfred Pearson, Goriel, uh, at the very least, were kind of that that three, four, five group. Uh, yeah, I mean, the guys after that, you know, three through, you know, seven or eight or so group, a lot of them just, we've had a lot of really disappointing years from a lot of their pictures. Um, you know, Reed Foley, Connor Green, uh, John Harris, TJ Zoic. Um, you know, Zoic was, it was more health than anything else, but, uh, you, you know, even Richard Urania, who's still in the top 10, but, uh, had a pretty disappointing year. <laughs> so a lot of those guys, that's, that's, that's the real concern. They just kind of dropped themselves in the, in the rankings given, given the, the seasons that they had. But Anthony Alford had a, I thought a really nice year for himself. Uh, he's a, a good athlete, good sense for the strike zone, bat the ball skills, good defense in center field at a premium position. Uh, and he had success this year at, at double A, he's 
he's going to be probably starting in the, the upper minors uh, this season and, and should get back to, to Toronto by the end of the year. So that combination of uh, performance, athleticism, defense, in at a premium position in the middle of a diamond and, and being at the, the upper level, but to me that separated him as the number three guy in the system. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to talk about Lourdes Gurriel. Obviously, this is a guy who came in with, with quite a bit of fanfare, uh, really struggled with some injuries this first year, and then overall uh, the numbers on paper weren't great. What was the kind of feedback you were getting from scouts who saw him here the, his first year in the States? So, uh, yeah, with, with Gurriel, I mean, he, he, he's the one guy I think who probably sticks out as, wait, why is this guy ranked where he's ranked given his performance, which which I think is, is understandable, but uh, I, I think we have to look at performance, especially his performance two ways, right? Like we, we can we use performance to, to measure a player's value and his contribution uh, of, of what he's done in the past, uh, but that's obviously not really what we're trying to do. We're trying to project these players going forward, and, and we can use the performance data to try to project a player going forward too. But in his case, we're talking about a pretty small sample size of performance. If we're just looking at 2017, where he, you know, he get yeah 66 at bats in high A and then 170 at bats in double A, and a lot of that was you know he played in April and May, and then most of June, he didn't really play uh, except for one game until June 19th. So, uh, you know, we have a, a Cuban player who is, is making a transition to a new country, which, you know, it, you know, it is a factor, but really more than anything, he hadn't really played competitive baseball since, I think it must have been, what, January or maybe... February of what now 2016. So I mean, he really had been away from having competitive game at bats for for a while. So once he gets in there, I think it's understandable for a guy to have an, an adjustment period to uh, to get to get your timing back, to get used to playing in uh, competitive baseball games. I mean, he's I understand he's working out and he's facing some live pitching when he's doing tryouts and, uh, you know, when he's in spring training with the Blue Jays, but so much of hitting is timing. And I think it's understandable that his timing may have been off, especially, um, you know, just, just given his skill set uh, and given his circumstances, that, uh, that that would be the case for him. So, look, it, it may be the case where he comes back next year and, and hits the same. <laughs> as he did this year, and in that case, yeah, his his stock would drop significantly. But I, I think in his case, there are some circumstances that I look at that say, you know what, if you're just looking at a performance, you're not really getting a true sense of this guy's present uh, or, or true talent level. I don't think that really tells the, the story of him. And that's whether you're looking at performance or whether you're just scouting him uh, and, and looking at what he's doing on the field this year, because I think there's legitimate reason to believe that if this guy's timing was off this year, it's not really fair to to judge him strictly on what he did in 2017. Uh, if you've seen this guy, which, which I have for uh, the last 
several years, you can see the the larger body of work and, and see what he looks like when he's when he's at his best. I think that's more indicative of of what to expect going forward. But definitely, 2018 is going to be a, a big season for him to show that uh, this that 2017 was more of a a fluke or an aberration, um, and and that he can put that behind him. You know, we've talked a lot about a lot of guys in this system who, who had down years. I want to touch on one more before we end on a high note. You know, Rowdy Tellez, uh, or Tellez uh, had a really, really strong year at AA in 2016. Went to AAA this year, 222, 295, 333. Played, you know, almost the whole season, only six home runs. You know, for a, a first base power guy, it was clearly a well. It's a disappointing season for anybody, but especially a, a first base power guy. Uh, what for you was was the main issues there that you you found discussed mostly by scouts and front office officials? Yeah, everything just seemed to fall apart for, for him this year. He, uh, I, I think, there's some bat speed concerns. Um, just that, you know. I, I, I've always been a little bit lower on him, I think, than some other people have been. So um, I, I certainly didn't expect him to completely crater uh, the way he did in, in AAA this uh, this past season. But um, yeah, I mean the the power wasn't there. Um, the you know <laughs> there's just nothing seemed to to go his way this year. And like you said, you, you just can't. You can't be, can't really be in any position and, and hit like that, but uh, especially as a, a first baseman, it's, uh, it's some pretty big red flags with him, and he's uh, his stock definitely drops quite a bit this season. You know, one one thing is, uh, you know, came out during the season. He was playing through his his mother uh, battling cancer, and so there's definitely, um, obviously, anytime you have something like that happening, there's. There's a lot of things going on uh, in your mind, in your life, beyond just baseball. Um, you know, was there was there any sense, again, talking to, to individuals, uh, both inside and outside the system, that they felt that some of his struggles were maybe, you know, related to, you know, that, or were there some, some physical things that they felt might have been independent of it? I mean, how, how much, from your perception, was it was it that versus, you know, true physical shortcomings, if you will? Uh, it's it's hard to play like a uh, psychologist from a from a distance or or even up close. It's uh, it, it's hard to say how much of any player's struggles are physical versus mental. But uh, the bottom line is he's he's just got to hit better. I mean you can't you can't have a six twenty eight OPS as a as a first baseman. I mean I think the the good thing with I mean the track record on him at pretty much every level is he's hit up through uh, through every level of A ball through through double A so he's he's still in the handbook uh, but uh, really based on the the track record pre prior to 2017 but uh, but the 2017 season definitely saw his saw his stock drop absolutely so you know we're gonna wrap up here I want to finish on a high note. Uh, again, a lot of guys, you know, Zoic and Reed Foley and, and McGuire and Harris, a lot of the pitchers uh, didn't have great years. Uh, the other side of the battery, though, saw a, a really promising year from Danny Jansen. Um, you know, he was a guy that got glasses and 
obviously you can't hit if you can't see and uh getting glasses has made a world of difference shot up to AAA this year was, was probably the biggest riser in the system just look rankings wise from where he was to where he is now uh, is this the blue jays everyday catcher of the future post russell martin uh he could be he could be i think there's a chance that he could be uh an everyday guy it's it's not somebody who's going to do anything that's going to wow you i don't i don't even think he has a a plus tool in his uh in his card but uh i don't think you, you need to have one to be an everyday catcher in in the big leagues it's it's nothing flashy but it's a guy who puts the bat to the ball pretty consistently has a good good grasp of the strike zone uh recognizes pitches doesn't expand the strike zone gives you just enough power as a catcher um, you know, is that more of like a Josh Toway type of skill set as, as somebody who, who you can run out there as a as a catcher at the big leagues? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know if that's necessarily an everyday guy, but I, I think he's sort of just on that cusp of somebody who, who has a chance to be uh, an everyday guy, even though he's, he's not going to do anything that really jumps out to you with a, a cannon arm or 70 power or or anything too flashy. I think he's just got a chance to be a really steady, steady catcher at the big league level. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said for having a steady catcher at the big league level. I think, you know, as you discussed, this, this, you know, there's no plus tool, and this is a guy who, well, you know, he obviously was was known before. This was his big breakout year. I think there's a lot of just a little bit of wait and see, like, okay, let's see how real this was. Did you get that sense at all discussing things with with evaluators? Uh, to, to some sense, yeah. I mean, he's at this point he's he's hit in Double A. He's hit in kind of a, a pretty small sample size, obviously in Triple A. Uh, I think the you know the, the main test for him is going to come at the the major league level. How much of that is is going to translate uh, at at that level? Which you know obviously <laughs> sounds kind of obvious, but um, but yeah. I mean, for a guy who's he's not going to do anything that that wows you. But he just pretty consistently puts the bat to the ball, gets on base, uh, has just enough power, uh, I think, for, for that skill set to, to translate at, a, at the next level. Absolutely. And then finally, the Blue Jays did receive a little bit of an influx this year. Uh, they had two first-round picks, uh, four of the top 100 picks. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the guys they took were, were fairly well-known names. Logan Warmuth, Nate Pearson, Hagen Danner had been a – a SoCal high school star for some time, Riley Adams, an All-American catcher. You know, they had four picks. They took four fairly well-known, uh, accomplished guys for their level. Um, and, you know, you have Nate Pearson ranked the highest. Just overall, uh, what were the early reviews on on this draft class they took in? I mean, yeah, I think the main guy to watch from that class is Pearson. Um, <laughs> it's, it's surprising to me that he was still available uh, where they got him with the 28th pick in the draft. And I, I'm not involved in putting together our, our BA 500, but we had him at number 13 on our board, and the Blue Jays got him at the end of the first round. I think that's that's tremendous value for uh, for that pick. Um, you know, he was drafted behind Logan Warmuth, and I think it's it's pretty evident at this stage that. Um, that Pearson, it, Pearson is the better prospect. I think his stuff 
just continues to to tick up as as the year went along. Uh, and pretty consistently mid upper nineties, uh, touching one hundred one. Uh, as his as his fastball got better, uh, his slider got better too. He just started throwing that pitch with more power and really just overpowered hitters in in the Northwest League. So uh, he's a guy I'm I'm pretty excited about, uh, and then definitely the Blue Jays are are pretty excited about too. So uh, this guy's got a chance to be a a power arm starter for them, potentially a, a mid rotation starter. Uh, he, you know, there's a chance maybe he elevates that even, uh, elevates that projection as he, uh, as he pitches into, in 2018. I'll have to wait and see what the results are, but there's a, a lot of really exciting things to like about, uh, about Nate Pearson. Absolutely. All right. I think we'll end it on that high note, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us and, uh, clearly a lot to look forward to in the Blue Jay system. For Ben Badler, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.